Hey everybody, I'm Greg Soule, and this is Why Am I, a podcast where I talk to interesting people and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. So my guest this go-around is Dan DeLeon. Dan lives his life the way he leads his church, which is open and affirming. Uh, That was honestly a new term to me, but essentially it means that all people are welcome and supported, so no matter if you are able-bodied or not, whether you are uh, somewhere in the LGBTQIA plus box of crayons, it's all the same. So honestly, Dan gives me hope, hope that um, the religious people in my life, ones I care about, can come to the one real truth, that loving others unconditionally is the only thing that matters. And you follow this principle first, and your faith should kind of fit in around that and not the other way around. I honestly earn, rather, I honestly learn a lot in this conversation, and I hope you do too. So please enjoy this chat with Dan. Dan, thank you for joining me on the Why Am I podcast today. I'm really glad to do it. Looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Me too. Man, conversation is it. That's, um, some people have accused me of doing interviews and it's like, to me, it doesn't feel like an interview, great. Cause an interview is me just asking you questions and you feeding stuff back. I want it to be a little back and forth, but I digress. So really my favorite go-to thing when I meet another human nowadays, and it's polarizing, right? I'm going to find friends real fast or, uh, people will quickly move away, not turn their back, right? It's like, you don't turn your back on crazy. Um, but I generally like to say, you know, who are you? Right. And I like to say, it's not necessarily what you do for a living. I mean, that's obviously part of who you are. Right. But every, everybody in your life sees you as something different, but only you really see yourself, right? You only know the real you. You're the only one. So that real you, who is that person? Like, who are you? I have to start by practicing what I preach and at the risk of turning off listeners, viewers with being too preachy, I am uh, a beloved child of God. I have to remember that, that because regardless of whether one has a belief in God or a higher power or not, um, that identity of being beloved is something that is my constant reminder when I turn to it that I'm not alone and that my existence in this world, in this universe is necessary, that I matter and that I'm here for, that I'm here for a reason, whatever that reason may be. Um, and I need to seek it out constantly with the confidence that I am again, beloved. It's so, and and the reason why I say I, I should practice what I preach is because I do semi-consistently preach and teach that as a pastor, as I feel that that's a foundational message for people, especially in the community that I serve that, uh, a lot of its mission is is healing to provide a place for healing and um that lesson being you are beloved you matter you're not alone and walk in that confidence so that you can get through this week 
and be reminded of that all the time, remind each other of that all the time. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, being more transparent and well, con continuing to be transparent and leaning more on insecurities. Um, I'd say that I am, uh, I am a coward Truth. and, uh, I, and I say that because that's a tendency that I have and that we're on and that if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have that tendency to varying degrees. It's just something that the my more childlike self was very timid and scared and afraid and um I've been thinking about this my therapist and I were talking about this recently about how and they, they were talking about um self-care is not how we should look at it it's selves care plural because we are not any one self we are a collection of all the selves that we have ever been and so that means that i have to acknowledge who that self in me of when i was a child and that child was afraid and to that extent when you ask who am i that piece of myself is a coward i'm not ashamed of it oh um I don't try to beat it down, but I try to acknowledge it so that I can be honest about that and recognize my tendencies for that and try to give it assurance and strength when it's necessary and to let it breathe and be, you know, who it needs to be when opportunities afford for timidity. So not trying to be too abstract, but that's just, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> that's a strong word, coward. You could have picked, I mean, if we open up the source, probably a hundred different words to describe that. To me, that has like a, a definite negative connotation in most people's mind, right? To be considered a coward, and for mm -hmm. you to call yourself that, I mean, that's, it's powerful. Like, why, why choose that word specifically? Because I don't like for words that have. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't like for words that have negative connotations, to um have power over us that cause us shame and a word like coward is something where you can say that to somebody uh and they will feel terribly ashamed to the point of potentially never recovering from it sure. the same can be said of the word liar yes. and that's one of the worst things that someone could be called as a liar or a, a racist, if you're called a racist. But if we're honest with ourselves, uh, because of the culture that we live in, um, we internalize some of those things like racism and we need to be honest with it and say, this is a piece of who I am and I need to deal with this, deal with this and not be so ashamed of it that I deny it and do nothing about it. And likewise, if someone says I'm a liar, who, who of us has never lied for good, bad, or otherwise. But if someone says you are a liar, then because of the shame that's associated with it, you'll allow for it to consume you to the point that 
you deny it, and then you can continue those behaviors. And with being a coward, like I said before, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being afraid and so stricken with fear that you don't act uh, in your when you are a child. That's a yeah. part of the innocence of of growing up. But I I did associate shame with my cowardice when I was younger, to the point that I never dealt with it. And so, in my adulthood, now that I'm taking a closer look at it, I'm trying to own that in a way that takes power away from the negative connotations associated with that word. And um, then I can deal with it. Hmm. Is it something that sits with you in your thoughts sometimes? Like you kind of go back to when I was a kid, I should have done this, I should have done that. Is that, I mean, does it oh, yeah. really still hold power over you in that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's nothing I can do about those things. I mean, I, I think about things like uh, you know, speaking up for some someone when you should have spoken up for them uh, on the playground. Um, you know, ganging up on someone who needed advocacy, uh, and those things were acting out of cowardice, where I was afraid of being in that person who was victimized shoes because I knew what it felt like. And rather than rising to the occasion and defending them, I didn't. And now that that's not some consistent behavior. I'm not saying like that's who I was all the time when I was a kid. I just those few moments where that happened when I was in grade school stand out to me so much in kind of like this, you know, Spielberg movie way of looking back at formative things that happen, like, you know, getting glimpses of, of, of moments in one's childhood and their youth where a story happens and, and then fast forward to 30 years later and you go, ah, that describes who they are. And it's like, no. And I don't think Spielberg means this either. It doesn't define who they are, but it tells you what's in their head and what they can't let go of. And that resonates with me. You know, I was thinking about actually like this kind of stuff <clears throat> just recently. I talked to my partner a lot about it, you know, and um, something I was realizing is like when you look back in time, you might feel shame about something, but it doesn't matter how much logic is associated with it because you're not looking back and thinking logically. You're looking back at the feeling, right? You're feeling that feeling all over again, which is something that I don't. I don't, I don't have a lot of feelings, especially don't have a lot of big feelings. So all of it was kind of new and fascinating to me that people will look back and not think about the logical steps that occurred, but the feelings associated with those things. Is that, is that mostly what it is for you? Like you look back and it's like a feeling of, like, like you said, shame, right? Mm-hmm. And you look back and you just, you look, if I'm hearing you right, you look back and, you know, the feelings are what stand out and you gauge to what extent those feelings are, are real, um, or have merit on determining who you are, the course of your actions, those kinds of things, or if they're simply nostalgic things that need to be left alone, you know, but yeah, feelings are, feelings are as strong as like we were saying before about moments what you associate with them, 
your sense of smell, for example, is something where it's like it brings back everything mm -hmm. in a flash. And the same thing can be said of just a, 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 a triggered feeling. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Like kind of looking back at um, childhood stuff, like, it, like I, I can do that myself sometimes as well. There's somebody, um, there's this lady named Whitney and I heard her on a podcast and she said, when the light of awareness shines on you, you don't have to feel shame about how messy your room is. And I was like, I had to, I had to unpack that for a minute. And it's like, once I realized I've been doing things wrong, I don't have to feel shame about, I just didn't understand. Right. Like, and now I, I genuinely know it and I can look back and it doesn't necessarily take all of those negative feelings away, but it dulls them down to where it's like, I was, I was a child. I was trying to figure my way through the world. And I mean, everybody makes mistakes, right? Because what's the old saying? You only touch the stove once kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. you learn, hopefully, hopefully you learn from your mistakes that, you know, you probably shouldn't do that thing again. And does, are you able to give yourself grace that really changes those feelings? Like, is that, is that something that you've through practice have been able to kind of forgive yourself for? Yeah, I, I would, uh, I would say that I, and, and a lot of us could probably say the same, maybe I'm wrong, but I do need to always show myself the same amount of grace that I extend to others. And that's what's challenging is showing myself that same amount of grace. I also try to, it's a combination of my, you know, personality and my vocation as a pastor is I try to lead with grace as much as possible and, uh, do hold myself accountable as much as I can in the moment in retrospect as to the degree to which I lead with grace, but, uh, can concentrate so much on that, that I don't focus enough on what you were just saying, showing myself enough grace to be able to forgive myself for things. I mean, yeah, Brene Brown talks about, you know, always assume that people are doing their best. And, um, I, that is grace in a way. Um, and I don't show myself the same kindness as often as I should. I think that's such a universal human experience. I've heard so many people say that exact thing. Like I would drop anything to help a friend, but I won't do that same thing for myself. Uh -huh. like, I, I have, it's maybe that's some kind of evolutionary thing where we need to protect the herd, right? Protect our village, make sure that everybody else is taken care of. We just can't, can't seem to do that for ourselves all the time. And, and if you do see somebody doing it, I don't know. Sometimes you'll look at them and say, oh, wow, they're really selfish. Or so, you know, so it's like, it feels like a double-edged sword. It's like a, there's no, there's no winning in any of this. So I guess you have to find kind of a, a happy common ground if you don't want to get judged by yourself and by everybody else, it seems. Mm -hmm. And how we treat ourselves is a projection onto other people very often where, I mean, it just, uh, being preachy again, the foundational <laughs> message of love your neighbor as you love yourself it's very easy we can think to willfully love our neighbor but loving ourselves doesn't come as easy but you you have to do both because if you only love yourself if you only show yourself enough grace that is um minuscule enough to put into a jewelry box 
then you only can go so far in how much love you will show to somebody else and how much grace you will share with somebody else. Um, I'm finding that out to be more and more of a truth in my own life, that it's not just a matter of, you should be better to yourself. You know, everybody else, you're being so kind to everybody else. It's, it, it's not just an ethic. It really is a spiritual practice um, and even a physiological practice that the better I treat myself, then the more capacity that I have in my relationships with anyone else in this world to forgive, to help out, to show grace, to love unconditionally. So. Mm. I found that to be true for myself as well. Like the, um, <clears throat> the more I don't uh, worry about things, the more I just accept them as they come at me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just not too hard on myself about mistakes because I've learned um, most everything that's positive that's come to me in my life is from me saying yes to, to like everything that comes at me. And I don't always know how to do the thing, but I figure it out, right? And sometimes I figure it out by doing it wrong a whole bunch of times and then eventually it just works. You know, it's, it feels like if you were going to write a sentence about how my career has existed, it's basically failure until somehow magically it succeeds and then I move on to the next thing where I fail at a whole bunch and then eventually succeed. But I've learned that um, I will fail and I anticipate the failure and I try and just... Um, look at everybody else around me and accept. Because I think for me, another problem was I used to put expectations on everybody else. Like I see so much potential in this person. If they didn't live up to it, that was all inside my head, had nothing to do with them. And that would kind of hold me back from there. And so it's like you said earlier, like um, uh, Brene Brown, you know, it's like people are going to, to me, they're going to fail just as much as I do. And I need to keep that in mind and uh, give them grace that I give myself and I've gotten really good at giving myself grace because somehow or another it always seems to work out. But I guess you probably, more than anybody else I've talked to, possibly uh, interact with a lot of other people in kind of rough moments. Happy moments, I'm sure, but a lot of tough times. And that's got to be taxing on you. Because, I mean, how do you, I know people say you can't take it all in, but it's like, I don't care what you tell me. Like... People, when they're in pain, like I absorb that like a sponge, unfortunately. And I'm just curious how you've learned to deal with that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a really good question and a tough one to answer, but I'll give it a shot. What came to mind when you said that was uh, this guy named Doug Anders, Reverend Doug Anders. He's no longer with us, sadly, died of cancer a couple of years ago, but he... he he was the conference minister for the denomination that I serve, the United Church of Christ, for about nine years. And when he retired, I remember him giving, uh, you know, a kind of farewell. Con he was having a farewell conversation, if you will, with a group of us clergy, and he was encouraging us with a reminder, saying, "You know, if you think about it, what you do is." is uh, uniquely powerful because you get to see people at their best and you get to see people at their worst. And he was trying to say it in the context of when we, you know, have a bad day or we ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Because there's so much just shit that we're dealing with that comes from people's worst. 
But if you look at that as they trust you in a way that they don't trust other people, they look at you in a way that they don't look at people of other vocations or positions. And therefore, the worst in them comes out. <laughs> and that's a treasured trust that no matter how ugly it might appear, you're the only one who gets to see it. You're the only recipient of it. Um, so how do I deal with it? I mean, well, one, I remind myself of what I just said, <laughs> but, but two, um, I try to, and this is a tough piece of it, but I, I try to maintain discretion as much as I can. That's actually one of my ordination vows. Do you vow to maintain discretion? And so I can't tell other people about a lot of the bad things that I encounter, whether that is people behaving poorly um, or, or, or in a way that is not true to who I think that they are, to just encountering awful situations. And, um, you know, that's the heavy thing to carry when I don't, I don't tell my spouse about it. I certainly don't tell my kids about it. I don't tell other church members or or friends about it, um, in part because of the discretion that I vowed to keep, and in part also because without a whole lot of context and experience, they just wouldn't understand. So I don't want to have them have to deal with it. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like my, you know, I, Brene Brown, <laughs> I'd say really popular with me as well, said like you have to you have to have a vault, right? Where if somebody tells you something in confidence, it goes in the vault of it. Uh, my vault consists of me and my partner, right? So I tell anybody, if you're going to tell me something, you're you're as much as telling her, right? And um, mm -hmm. that's very much good for me because I don't always understand people's motivations, intentions, where they're coming from. And it's, it's also a good place for me to like bounce it off somebody else to kind of figure things out. But also I understand that there's a certain amount of burden I'm placing upon this person, right? You know, I mean, I might be lightening the load off of me, but I'm partially putting it on their shoulders too. And I can see not wanting to put that weight on people you care about, but then that isolates you and you become this person on an island all by yourself. Like that's, no. that sounds uniquely lonely. It is exactly. And that is just part of the gig. Um, being a minister is a very lonely gig. Ugh. It's an isolating vocation. And, um, you know, I, I don't say that with any amount of pride. It's, uh, it, it's often, it, how can I say it? One of the things that we, I remember us learning in seminary is that being a minister is being called, um, as in called to ordain ministry <laughs> is to be set aside. Um, you are set aside to do this task. And in that being set aside comes the consequence of isolation. Um, having experiences that only you get. It's not just a matter of maintaining discretion, like I was saying before. It's a matter of getting it in a way where, you know, only other people who are in similar circumstances might get it. And even then the details are different. So... I relish camaraderie with other people who do this 
what I've the title of a book is called this odd and wondrous calling. And that's one way to describe being a clergy person. <laughs> um, but the trick with that is that because of the nature of what we do, um, it being a kind of, you're always on the clock to a degree gig and Sundays being when you're on, that means that we can go to one another's respective ministerial settings to one another's churches, houses of worship, what, what have you, um, to be with each other and lift each other up because we're separated. Right. So, um, in those rare moments when I can be with, um, clergy peers, it's, it, it, it helps a lot. I mean, yesterday, just coincidentally, there, there's a group locally that I try to, uh, to, to maintain and coordinate and it's called faith leaders for justice. And what I try to do is we're, we're not an official group. We're not a 501 C three. We don't have a mission statement. It's just a group that I try to get together across different Christian denominations and religions and, um, and get, get together around the table with the commonality of seeking justice in whatever capacity. And so yesterday we had a quarterly lunch meeting and it was a group of about 10 of us, really good group of people, interfaith and multi-denominational. And, uh, we were just talking about, we, we, you know, shared who we are and what our setting is and, and talked about different justice issues that we are seeking, be that, you know, uh, uh advocating uh, for our unhoused neighbors, food, food injustice, um, LGBTQ exclusion and seeking justice there, um, women's autonomy and seeking justice there, et cetera. Uh, there's all these different things that in culture they're labeled as issues, but human beings are not issues. <laughs> and so to try to get us to have this commonality, I, 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 uh, I, turn to the this idea of having a common vision and a lot of what faith leaders are called to do is to provide vision um prophetic imagination is what uh walter brueggemann calls it prophetic imagination because if people can't see it then they don't believe it um and they if they can't see it they're not going to work for it and sure. so instead we focus on issues to the point where we go, ah, oh, what's the use and burn ourselves out and get angry and give up. So I'm kind of going on a different tangent. I apologize. But, uh, the, the point being that we reminded ourselves of having a common vision. And so we responded to the prompt, which was, uh, what is God's vision for this community or what is a holy vision for this community? And just responded to that prompt and then read them aloud and there was just a common thread throughout different uh, different words describing the same thing of just um equitable care prioritizing the needs of those who are most marginalized for the sake of the whole community um dismantling divisions healing um treating each other with love and kindness. I mean, just all kinds of things that related to that. And the more we talked about that, getting back to the point of feeling isolated, 
the less isolated we felt. And it's encouraging to me that we can do that for each other in that space. And that's what I'm trying to cultivate. I stress myself out over, should this group be doing something? Do we need to have an action item? Do we need to have a statement, hold a press conference, do all these hmm. kinds of things? And you know, that's the kind of pressure we put on ourselves to always be doing something. But ultimately what we need to be foundational is um, uh, relationships and uh, trying to heal from that constant sense of isolation that can get the best of us. Do you think others, I mean, obviously that wasn't your initial intention when you, when you started this group, but it sounds like it's absolutely morphed into that. Do you think everybody else understands it the same? Do you think they feel that as well, whether they have words for it or not? I don't know. I can't speak for all of them. I do know that, that some of them do because they've said that mm. provoked, you know, but letting me know afterwards, I always feel uplifted when we get together and, and do this and I, and I feel more rejuvenated and inspired. And so I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's the idea. That's the idea. Um, but that group initially got started uh, a few years ago when our um, undocumented immigrant neighbors were feeling just scared and terrified and, you know, the kids in public schools going, am I going to come home from school and my parents are going to be gone and, mm. and teachers not knowing how to deal with that and how to counsel them. And, and so that, that a cohort of local clergy who were hearing that got together to just lament that and try to figure out what we could do about that. And it just morphed into this group over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you get desperate and you don't know what to do, then that can get the best of you. It's like, and cause I'm wholly unfamiliar with this world is like interfaith fellowship. I mean, is that pretty unique or is that pretty common? I like, I really don't know. Depends on the context. I mean, in Bryan College Station, it's pretty uncommon. Um, where do you see uh, Christians from different denominations hanging out with each other? Where do you see Christians, Muslims, Jews, Unitarian Universalists spending time with each other, uh, being in solidarity with each other? It seldom happens. And it's and it, it's not, I don't feel that it's not because of the stereotypical reasons that we have in culture of just, you know, we are diametrically opposed to each other and all this kind of stuff. So we should not be with each other. It's more just because of the way we practice our religion, our faith and spirituality is, is so siloed, hmm. right? And, um, so no, it's not common. And that's another thing that we try to remind ourselves of around that table is what we're doing right now is uncommon. And so let's foster these relationships as much as possible so that, Hey, if we end up finding an action item that we can, uh, act upon together, then thanks be to God and let's do it. But, uh, more importantly, let's continue fostering these relationships so that it will be more organic and we can find moments to be in solidarity with each other 
uh, more informally in the community, and it won't be so uncommon, like you're saying, to have interfaith relationships, interfaith cohorts, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what, I mean, because I would think, number one, you have to have strength of your faith, right? That you can open yourself up to other cultures, other religions, and and feel okay. Because I have family members who, because I was asking them, uh, it was at my uncle's birthday, and I was asking them, you know, like, what are what are things you think every person alive should, should do? Right. Like, like kind of a thing. And I, I have a few and one was like, um, I think everybody should work in the service industry because, you know, it gives you a little bit more compassion, uh, for other human beings. You're not just being a jerk in a store sort of thing anymore. Uh, I think that would go a long way to, to help in the world a bit. I know it seems weird, but that was, that was one of them. Doesn't seem weird at all. I completely agree. <laughs> one of them is I think, uh, people should travel. You should, see what other people live like in other places. doesn't even necessarily mean out of the country, but just see what's important to somebody that's very different from you. I think that's one. And then one other one is, I think everybody should sit down with as many people from as many varied backgrounds, religion-wise, and just have a conversation with them. Because it seems like there's a lot of division. And one of my family members was like, no, you can't do that. Because there was this fear that somehow there's this trick these other religions are trying to play to like, confuse you or disorient you and I was just thinking you know if you have strength in your faith then you should be fine as far as that goes and just remember that everybody else is a human right with thoughts feelings a community that needs help and support and man if if I've got enough on my plate maybe I can help you you know, so, you know so I just yeah I don't know all that feels important and you're the first person legitimately in kind of a religion that seems to not just share that view but live that view which is like refreshing like, I didn't know you existed, Dan. I mean, I knew you existed, but I didn't know people like you existed. There's a lot of me. There's a lot of us. Yeah. If I can give you hope with that. And thank you for saying that. I really do appreciate that. Um, but yeah, to, to the with the example of your family member that said that, I, I mean, if the faith that we practice, whatever it may be, is in fear of being in conversation with someone who practices another faith or religion because it might rub off on us in a way that will compromise our faith, then what is the point of practicing that faith? That faith is completely, it, it's, it, that says far more about the faith that we practice than it does about somebody else's faith or religion. If my God is so small that it will be, you know, defeated by conversing with someone who uh, practices another faith or religion, then that God is too small, right? Um, Brian McLaren is an author who is known for a lot of his, uh, he, he's a Christian author who's known for uh, interfaith relationships and, and writes a lot to that effect. Um, and he talks about how being in relationship with people of other religions and faiths does not compromise our own from his experience christian faith it as it does strengthen it huh. i mean the more that and, and i and i attest to that the more that i learn about the tenets of and experience of my uh jewish neighbors my muslim neighbors the more it's solidifies my understanding 
of and the urgent need for uh, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, loving God and loving neighbor as I love myself, following Jesus and authenticating that discipleship. I, I could go on, but just that's that's what I walk away with, not a, oh my gosh, am I, do I need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? That's, that's never crossed my mind. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. It's interesting. There's, um, you know, it sounds like, cause I'm, I'm very much a fan of, I think nothing's above examination. You know, I, I think we should look at everything and you know, just because we've always done it this way is never the correct answer. You know what I mean? It's like everything can be improved and different. And it feels like um, just from reading a little bit about you, it takes about five seconds to see you are very different in your practice than I think most people would expect. Um, just how kind of open and uh, accepting you are. And I um, actually met you at uh, one of the Pride 100 meetings, you know, about... LGBTQIA plus advocacy just in our local community. And you were, you were there. And one of the people I respect most in the world, Adrian Capetillo, she's, uh, she's family to me, you know, she really is. Um, she goes to your church and, and that pretty much said everything I needed to know. And so I'm just curious if maybe you'd talk a little bit about, uh, kind of your thoughts and feelings as far as all that stuff goes and how all that came about. Cause I'm sure it's an interesting story, which I genuinely don't know. So, so me being at the pride 100 thing, no, 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 not that just your beliefs, um, how you landed upon them. And, uh, cause you're, oh, wow. you're obviously a lot more open. I don't know how to eat that elephant. Well, um, one bite at a time. You're a lot more open and welcoming than most people I've, um, interfaced with, not just somebody that wears, uh, a label like reverend or pastor just in general, just a regular humble person walking on the street, you seem to be more open and accepting, especially as your faith is concerned. And I just, I'm curious, how did you get there? And how do I help the people that are important to me find their way there as well? Like that kind of thing. Okay. Um, let me try to answer that. First of all, Adrian's great people. Second, if we have time, I'd love to share a little bit of something about the Pride 100 thing, because that's kind of an interesting perspective too that I've been wrestling with ever since that night when uh, I was there, what you're talking about. But three, okay, so how do I come to this? The best way for me to to explain it would be just with story, right? So let me just give you testimony as briefly as I can. Um, I was raised in the Baptist church. I was serving a Baptist church in Austin when uh, serving the youth ministry there. And um, at the time that I was doing that, we had a youth group of like, you know, tw 20 to 30 kids. We'd take like 40 kids on our uh, summer camps and stuff like that. It was a really good, good group. And um, two of the kids in that youth group at the time were teenage girls. Um, who I still have a good relationship with to this day, did one of their weddings. Uh, their mom, Mary is her name, was attending seminary in Austin. And when she was about to graduate, 
she asked to be ordained. And the way that works in the Baptist church is the autonomy of the local church provides for ordination. The local church ordains. And so when she came to that church and asked to be ordained, they paused and the church was divided almost down the middle as to whether to ordain her. Why? Because Mary is an openly gay woman who at that time was uh, in a relationship with a woman who she still is married to today, um, who at that time, I think, I believe they'd been together for 13 years. Hmm. But uh, so the church knew Mary, knew her partner, knew her family, knew who she was. And, uh, you know, Mary would volunteer with the youth group and, and things like that. And everybody was great. But then when Mary asked to be ordained, all of a sudden that was a problem. And um, I had recently been ordained. Excuse me. And um, I just saw Mary treated in a way that, in my opinion, was uncalled for, unfair. They, they would hold, the, the church would hold uh, town hall meetings after worship services where we would um, get together and, and talk about what, you know, why we should or should not ordain an openly gay woman. And uh, I remember in one of those town hall meetings, Mary was put up to the, at the front and asked a series of questions. One of them being, if a teenager came to you and told you that they were, uh, that, that they had had sex, how would you respond to them? And the comment was made, we didn't ask Dan these questions. We didn't vet Dan with these questions. Why are we asking Mary these questions? That in and of itself said everything. But even the nature of that one example I gave is how um, one's sexual identity, uh, whether if someone is, is queer, it is so sexualized that someone like Mary is asked questions about sex rather than questions about ministry and how she is going to, you know, carry out being an ordained minister if she were to have been ordained. So I saw people treat each other poorly. It wasn't so much about the fact that I was in the camp that was saying, yes, we need to ordain Mary. It was more about how people from the two camps treated each other <laughs> and it was bad. Um, I remember one person, Phyllis was her name, standing up in one of those meetings and just going, well, the devil's having a field day with us, referring to our terrible treatment of each other. And I just, I saw how the, the toll that that took on the whole youth group, especially Mary's daughters who were in my care. And my feeling then as now is this is not what the gospel looks like. This is not um, an embodiment of love. And so I carried that with me and that informed my calling a great deal. And, um, you know, fast forward just a side note to the happy ending of that story, if you will, is that Mary withdrew her request to be ordained from that church and, um, another church, which happened to be a mission of that church, sought her out and said, we will ordain you, and we'd also like to call you to be our pastor. And she <laughs> ended up serving that congregation as the Reverend Mary Wilson uh, for several years, and uh, a darn good preacher. Anyway, with me, um, that informed a, a good piece of my calling, and 
fast forwarding to the congregation that I serve now, the conference minister then for our denomination would worship at that church um, where I was doing the youth ministry to get away from work because he was not Baptist. Heard me preach a couple of times, gave me the profile for Friends Congregational Church and said, you should apply. And when I looked at it and recognized and then saw that that Friends Congregational Church was an open and affirming church, which is the United Church of Christ's designation for, um, it's, it, it's the statement that says, we are welcoming and inclusive of with with the with the with an emphasis on that welcome and inclusiveness being toward our LGBTQ siblings to say you're welcome to participate fully in the life and ministry of this church and uh, that's what it means to be open and affirming when i saw that i i said here is a church who has gone through those difficult conversations and made a decision made a statement to that effect and i would like to see how i can help them continue uh, moving forward. I would like to lead a congregation in what comes after that. And given the fact that I was serving in a church setting that at that time was stuck, I wanted to move forward with that and see how that would challenge me. Um, And so I'm trying to come to a conclusion of this story, coming to friends, you know, so I had that belief, I had that stance but I still really had not been even slightly immersed in relationships with the queer community, with LGBTQ plus people. Um, I had to a very small, very, very small extent. But then when I came to Friends, I remember on one of the first Sundays that I was there, a uh, woman named Dinah, who's a really sweet and dear friend of mine and uh came up to me and said, Hey, I'm Dinah. I'm getting married to a woman and you're going to do my wedding. <laughs> I was like, okay. And, um, I, so I was just basically told with confidence, you are going to do this. I wasn't asked. It wasn't, are you comfortable with this? Are you okay with this? It was, you're the pastor of this church and you're going to do my wedding. Um, and that to me was just an invitation into continuing to be again, blessed and challenged with those perspectives that, have shaped and molded who I am, my beliefs in that degree. Um, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll end it with this one more, just like quick story with it. Um, a, another beloved member of our church, um, his name's Brian Blake. He died a year ago. Actually, the anniversary of his death is coming up very soon. Um, unexpectedly in his sleep, young, just in his early fifties. Anyway, openly gay man with a husband, dearly beloved by not just our church community, but our whole community. And I remember when I first came to the church, he would text me at like, you know, 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock on a Saturday night and go, Hey, you should come to Halo, which is, you know, the gay bar in downtown Bryan. I was like, it's a Saturday night and I got to work in the morning. Plus, (laughs) I got an infant son. He's like five months old. Like I can't go. But um, at his funeral, I, I shared that story and said that in retrospect, that that made me feel so very included because here was a uh, 
gay man telling this straight guy you belong and you can still be a part of this community. <laughs> and so that was an honor to me that I try to respect as much as I can by learning as much as I can continually from my perspective um, about what it means to be queer in a heteronormative world. That's and I such feel like a juxtaposition. Yeah, what? well, that's that's just if you if we listen to that, I, I preached about that this past Sunday. Is if we listen to those perspectives and, and grant them authority versus some pejorative alternative labeling, then that can teach us a lot about the faith that we practice and how important it is and how urgent it is. So, if you can believe it, that's the short version of an answer to your question. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty succinct, and I think you gave me everything I needed. But what really struck me is, because I've never looked at it through these 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 eyes, these goggles, these lenses that you have. So much of you know the that community, their time is spent trying to fit into our world, right? Trying to not make a fuss. Let me blend. Let me not be a problem. And here you were going into their world, and you got a little taste of it, which I just like. I've never that's never occurred to me like that. I would have to like do that. I always assume everywhere I go, I assume that not necessarily that everybody wants me there, but that I will just, I'll sort of blend. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I won't have a problem. And so like having to sit in that for a minute would probably almost be like an out of body experience. Like all what? of a sudden you have to like be aware and, and then think about those things. I never looked at it through that lens. That's wild. And back to what we were talking about before about uh, being isolated, that's another piece of this experience with the particulars of what we're talking about is that um, very often because I am a Christian clergy person, um, among many other of my peers, I'm sometimes held at arm's length because of being um, the pastor of an open and affirming church. And then when I am in queer community, um, because of the fact that I am a Christian pastor, I am held at arm's length as, as well. There's legitimate distrust of who I am. And so I have to earn that. I'm not trying to earn that respect so that I can be liked. I'm trying to earn that respect by being humble and listening for uh, the sake of healing. Um, you know, in, in, in much the same way that, you know, you hear about people at uh, pride, pride marches that are, you know, Christians ha that have shirts on that say, I'm sorry and free hugs and stuff like that so that some form of reconciliation can be established. It's, it's similar to that where I just feel like it's an honor for me to be in, in queer spaces of any kind. And I don't have the right to be, I lead with that. And so it's just a constant learning experience. Um, and it hasn't always been easy and it isn't always easy, but I don't walk away from that going, man, what's wrong with them? I'm trying to do right by them. They should, 
they should, you know, have more respect. That is a heteronormative privileged response. Yeah. And so I try to check that and just learn. Yeah. I think this tickles in my brain. <clears throat> I think what you were talking about with your pride 100 experience, because I heard somebody say something like, no offense to, to Dan, but you know, we don't always trust people coming from a church. Is that, was that the experience you were thinking of? Oh yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that's what ties off this loose end. I wanted to mention about that experience. So just to a real quick, um, context for your listeners and viewers, Pride 100 is a uh, local nonprofit that strives to get 100 people together at minimum and get them to each commit to giving $100 toward a business nonprofit organization in our community that strives to be uh, welcoming of advocating for the LGBTQ plus community. And this is a relatively new organization. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, but at a, we had a, a meeting recently where three nominees were selected to show up and give brief presentations, five minute presentations about who they are and what they would do with the money if they were to be selected by the group as the designee to get those, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, and so it was, uh, I was there and with, with two other incredible, um, nominees. And when I got up there and was trying to explain who we are as a church and explaining that, you know, part of being open and affirming means that we are, uh, while prioritizing welcome and inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community, that it also holds us to a standard of marginalized peoples in our midst, including our neighbors with differing abilities and disabilities. And we don't have an, a ramp to our space, to our main space, that is, because the ADA does not require by law for churches to be ADA compliant. And so that that's, and it's like cut and dried. That's what I was trying to present. And we didn't get selected and, and I'm perfectly fine with that. And I, I, because it frankly felt weird being up there when this is the thought that I was having. If we were to win, if we were to be voted on as the recipient of the, that money, then there are plenty of people in this room who would be placed in the unwanted position of giving money to a church when they would never want to give their money to a church, no matter how well-intentioned, proven that church might be toward being inclusive of and welcoming of LGBTQ plus community. The church has caused so much pain and harm to queer people and their families and allies and friends that how dare this guy come in here and try to force my hand to give money to his church. That was the thought that was going through my head. Now, I don't know whether there was anybody in the congregation, excuse me, see there, there's my church, <laughs> slipping right in the in. crowd that had thoughts to the extent that I just voiced them as an example, but I just felt like that is a legitimate position to have. And I don't want to place anyone in a, a position of like 
feeling compromised or unsafe. And so, you know, that's why I was very grateful that the Pride Community Center was voted on as the recipient and not our church. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm thankful that that led to you and me, Greg, having this conversation. But uh, I hope that whatever words I did share um, that night did give people some hope. If anything, that was what I was grateful for, you know. Anyway. Yeah, for sure. I think anybody that's an advocate, anybody that's kind and caring, uh, I think giving them a voice is, is good. It sounds like you were actually relieved you guys didn't get selected. And would you have felt, would you felt just, what would have been the, it would have been guilt associated with that? You think you would have felt like shame? Like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe I did this. I don't know about guilt or shame, but I would have felt bad. Mm. And I think the reason why was because I felt weird going into it that night. When I was on the stage, I, I I like to think that I'm a pretty em 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 empathetic person, you know, and the room felt uncomfortable so, when I was up there. It 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 felt uncomfortable, and um, and so when I got done with the talk, I went, yeah, that, that doesn't feel right, and I wouldn't have. I knew we weren't gonna win, but in the, on the off chance that we did, I think I would have used that opportunity to say what I just told you in so many words. Like, yeah. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, coming into it, I think I had my guard up a little bit. I mean, obviously cap trusts you. And so like I was pretty on board anyway, but hearing you talk, I think was, it was good. I think I, uh, yeah, I just like uh, me, I'm, I'm hetero as well. Right. So I, you know, I don't, I don't face these struggles, but there are people in my lives that are extremely close to me that, that do. Um, and so even before that, this stuff was kind of important to me and cause I have a lot of friends, you know, that are in that community anyway, but now that it's like so exponentially close, it's become even more important to me. And yeah, I've just, I have family members that actively do harm using that as their shield to hide behind. And it just, I can't even begin to imagine the uphill battle you face every time you step out of the door. I never thought about it. Like nobody wants to be Dan's friend. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like theoretically your peers and then the community that doesn't truly know you and your intentions. It's yeah. like you, it's just every day. It sounds like a mountain to climb, but well, to you be, do it. To be fair, I mean, I, I just, I, um, I've got friends and then, uh, I do feel loved. I don't want to make <laughs> like, you know, just like some pariah. Nobody wants to be my friend and woe is me. I do. Yeah, have no, no. I was being a bit hyperbolic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, to, to your hyperbolic point that that is, that stands true. That just among people who don't know me, that is the feeling, that is the reception. And that's how I am. I have to carry myself, uh, in the community. That's tough. Sounds like you, sounds like you do just as much work on yourself as you do for the community, which goes back to the point where you were saying you genuinely have to give yourself more grace to help everybody else. But that's all, I mean, it's all learning. 
it's all a learning journey, right? It's like you never, there's never a destination. It's always, I'm on the, I'm on the path. Mm-hmm. That's tough. That's true. That's tough it's though. Yeah, like it's, one thing I've learned is the hardest thing for me to change is my, um, is my brain, right? Cause it just, it thinks it's trying to keep me alive. Like it's trying to protect me from like saber two tigers or something, I guess. I don't know. Like there's a mammoth that's going to squish me. That lives so, in part of my brain. Do you find that in um, that in doing more and more work on your brain, on yourself, um, do you ever find yourself in positions where you are with people that uh, th- that you love or, or that you respect, that you're close to in some capacity, and they haven't done the work on themselves that you have done on yourself, and so then you get like agitated by their perspectives, their outlook, their response <laughs> to things. It's, um, it's funny. It's kind of like waking up from the matrix and you see everybody else walking around and they are theoretically just as capable of waking up as you are, but they, they choose not to seek happiness. And it's so funny. Like, I I don't know if this is your experience, but I've had to parent my parent before, like as an adult, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a weird experience, you know, and you see them, uh, you see them like doing the same old, you know, I like to think of people as like, we have these patterns, right. And we, we walk in these ruts, like our dogs in the backyard, you know, they, they cut these patterns in the grass and they do it so long over so many years that they can't see up over the edge anymore, you know? And it's like, you're so deep in this pattern. You don't realize Mm. you're doing this anymore, but you know, like you're perfectly capable. You just, you're choosing not to seek things that will bring you happiness. Something I've, I've told the people because I, I know people in all faiths and not faiths, you know, whatever, whatever, however you want to flavor it. It's like yeah. your deity of choice didn't put you here to be unhappy. Right. So it's whatever you believe in, you know, you're supposed to be kind to other people, but also be kind to yourself and, and look at that. But yes, I, especially when I initially started making real progress on myself, it's like, what's your problem? What's the hold up here? You know, it's, but again, that was me putting expectations on other people. And I've learned not to do that because it never ends well. And <laughs> it's, it's tough. I've, I've just, um, like when you, somebody asks you for actual advice, this is my experience. I would, I would give what I, I would give a story. I never tell anybody what to do. Right? I just tell a story. And, um, if they ask me the same thing, I might rephrase the story like later down the road. But they asked me a third time. It's like, you know, there's there's no value in this. We're not getting anywhere. So I'll just generally change the subject. I'm not sure how you usually approach these things, but I'm assuming you've done work on yourself. And you know what? Initially, it genuinely made me excited to see me growing and changing. And I wanted that for these other people, especially people that I, that I care about and love. And maybe it was that excitement that made me a little too um, zealous at first. I'm curious your experience though. Um, gosh. Well, I guess, I guess my first response is what do I do is I, is I try to ask more questions. And what came to mind when you said, I like to tell stories is that just reminded me of how Jesus responds when he is asked questions so many times. And the gospels is, um, by asking, by asking questions right back. And so when people, um, say things that inside are making me uncomfortable, frustrated, what have you, instead of going, 
what is wrong with you? Or, or, or can you hear yourself? Is uh, asking that rhetorical question, right? Is that I have a genuine question. I try to ask a genuine question of why do you feel that way? Um, why, why, why do you think that that makes you feel the way that you do? And just see where that goes. Um, and, and a lot of just, I don't know if I'm hearing your question right, but you ask like, how do I deal with that? A lot of what we encounter when people are unwilling to concede anything uh, about insert issue topic is that it's it's from a stance of fear that if I can see this, then it's exposing the holes in my belief system and ideology. And it's, it's like, it's like the loose thread of a sweater where if you pull it, then the whole thing is going to come undone. And there's that fear. And that can be anything from, you know, one's political beliefs to one's, uh, interpretations, of scripture that inform their stance on certain issues and all that. So anyway, you know, it's something you, you said there, um, maybe think of this play. I went to not last Saturday, the Saturday before I met this through the podcast, this fellow named Stan Zimmerman. He does a lot of stuff. He's an amazing writer out in Hollywood and does all kinds of stuff, but he has this play where a friend of his committed suicide and, through the grief process and all that, he was trying to reconcile all of it. And he just like had this immediate response. I need to write this thing. Like, and he, he came up with the idea and he put it together and it's really powerful and kind of, kind of hard in some respects, but, um, they, he tells the story of his friend and how he committed suicide, but interlayered in there are people's suicide notes. Right. And they, they talk about the person and then they read their note and they have live actors that, that read their notes up there. Oh, yeah. And at the very end, you know, because they're giving statistics throughout there, they basically say that actually having these conversations, it's proven that they save lives. Right. Like having these incredibly tough, possibly taboo conversations literally saves people's lives. And they're saying that some people have this idea that if you, you come to a friend or a family member or anybody that you think may be in danger of suicide and you, you ask them, you know, if they're having thoughts about harming themselves or suicide, that somehow you're going to plant that idea in their head. That's, mm-hmm. like, that's not the case. You're that's not going to, you're not going to magically plant this idea in point of fact, you might actually save their life. Yes. Right? And so I think it's what you, what you said there, I think that probably translates to everything, even parts of your faith that you are having questions about. Like just because you ask somebody else about it doesn't mean you're going to, like you said, pull the thread on their sweater. It's going to completely unravel. It's not going to happen. If anything, you could um, maybe help them on ultimately, hopefully help yourself. I think communication's so lacking. We're all so afraid that like somehow it's going to do harm. And if anything, other than, you know, bawling my eyes out at that thing, it taught me, even the scary things are actually worth talking about. The uncomfortable things that we're talking about. And also how would I feel if I didn't have that conversation and something happened? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. Like we talked about at the very beginning. I don't want that looking back thinking I could have, I should have. I don't, I don't want that in my head. I don't want that in my heart. I just want to, 
yeah. to have those conversations. But it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, you know, not That's... just the not just the person initiating, but also the the listener that can be uncomfortable as well. So, do you have any sage advice for that? Um, gosh, just to not shy away from it, I guess is my first response. I mean, especially when it comes to the topic of suicide. Um, I'm very passionate about suicide prevention and, um, you know, thankfully I don't have an experience of if I had said this or if I had not shied away from that, then maybe this person would, um, still be alive. Thankfully I don't have that, but I do have, you know, experiences with people who have taken their own life, um, who have completed suicide. And if we're honest, almost all of us do as well. But we're reluctant to talk about it because for fear of that stuff getting on us or somebody True. else, like it's some, you know, contagious virus or something. And just like you said, I mean, that's the the fact is that we need to talk about it in order to prevent it. And the more we talk about it, then the less taboo it is. Um. And so I guess this isn't, this isn't so much advice as just kind of a practice and experience and holding myself accountable by saying it out loud is that when it comes to preaching, that is a sacred task that we who are put in the position of, of preaching, uh, um, need to take seriously when it comes to who is your audience, who's your congregation, what are their experiences, where are they coming from, what needs to be said, and how do you do it in a way that is um, constructive, honest, good, but also that is sensitive to where people are right now. Um, and it, it, It's like something that Jesus says, I have much more to tell you, but you can't bear them now, is what he says. <laughs> That's something to keep in mind when it comes to any issue or topic. Uh, things need to be said, but how are we going to say them? And so, you know, uh, we've, we've talked about suicide, for example, in sermons, and that is a way of if you approach it with those sensitivities in mind, then in the long run, you are creating for a culture that is not afraid to talk about that mm. and that looks for those signs, which is ultimately what we as a culture need to be doing as mental health issues and and suicide is, is just an epidemic. Yeah. You know, it's the um, the group that brought the, the play in, it was this... Um, Jewish community group. And at the very end, <clears throat> at the very end of the play, they actually have a mental health professional there taking questions from the audience. So there's, it's like, it's a requirement. He won't come and do it unless you do that piece, which I think is, is brilliant. It's like, it's such a, I mean, it was like a good needed piece right there at the end. But one thing, the, um, uh, Reverend, I think I can't remember what her title was. Um, but she was talking about how, you know, in their faith, in their community, that a lot of people don't want to talk about suicide because there's this shame associated with, if I commit suicide, then I, I can't be buried 
in a Jewish cemetery or I can't have a Jewish service or any of that stuff, right? And so you just you just keep it in because of the fear and the shame of that. And she mm-hmm. was like, let me remove that stigma. It was like, even if you commit suicide, we will still preside over your funeral. We will still bury you, you know, with your family, with your people, wherever they happen to be. And mm-hmm. um, let's talk about it before it gets to that point though, right? And so I just mm-hmm. thought that was like, I didn't realize that that was maybe the piece. Cause like I, I had, I've never, I've never gone down that path, like really thinking about why don't people want to talk about it and that it's, it's shame associated with it. And then where does that come from right, to kind of follow it down? So I think I had never heard any, uh, anybody doing that. And the fact that you guys are already like destigmatizing that inside, because also part of their statistics is that the uh, LGBTQIA plus community is like, adversely affected by suicide like yes. exponentially high rates and mm-hmm. especially for trans kids it's like i don't even want to think about it like that is like such a scary statistic and so what? the fact that people are out there removing that maybe pulling down some of those barriers to building a bridge right let me help me help me get over this thing well also to your example of uh um it getting to that point as you said of uh a funeral, sadly, for those who complete suicide in those in those environments, when the family gives permission to be able to talk about that, then to talk about it in that situation, in that environment, that's that's important too. And i've uh, I've witnessed that. I've been a part of that, and it's really helpful to work toward destigmatizing. I've also been in funerals where it's the complete opposite. No, we don't talk about that. And uh, I can just feel that palpable stigmatization in what isn't said, in what isn't addressed. Yeah. It's so crazy that we still harbor those old ideals. You know, this isn't like the 1700s where our, our name is going to be tarnished. You know, if somebody finds out this happens, I'm just, I just, it's... It's sad that we still hold on to that. Like we're so concerned about how this person might judge me or that person that we could actually maybe withhold something that will save other people's lives. Like it just, ugh, it hurts. But I I tell you what, Dan, we are getting dangerously close to time and um, I want to be very respectful of your time. I didn't expect this to go as long as it did. You are, um, you are very kind for this. Like I, I, I often tell people that I see time as a gift, right? Because you can get all kinds of stuff, but you can't acquire more time. And I think I maybe mean it more on this one than I have in a really long time because I was not unchanged by this conversation. So what I always hope for is that I'll somehow be a better human. And uh, I think I am. And so I, I genuinely appreciate your time uh, today for this. So right here at this point is usually where I ask people, so is there anything you want to promote? If you wanted people to connect with you, your organization, how would you want them to like find you or find your group on the internet? Like what are your, what are your favorite, uh, favorite methods for people to do all that stuff? Well, uh, of course I can share with you where I serve. I'm the senior pastor of Friends Congregational Church in College Station, Texas. Um, you can find us at friends-ucc.org. Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, and if you want to come and be with us in person, 
we have services on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Um, and yeah, it's a great group of people. Friday afternoons from 2.30 to about 6 at Peace Lutheran Church right next door to us. We do a mobile food pantry where you can come and volunteer anytime. Please also let people in the community know that that is a um, resource if they are in need of food. The Brazos Valley Food Bank provides food for us to um, uh, sort through and distribute at that time. It's just a drive through food giveaway. So that's every Friday at Peace Lutheran that, that we strive to be a part of. So I, I could go on, but those are just a few things that I wanted to to share. And, and also, if anyone just has questions or um, <laughs> laments, <laughs> anything like that, where they want to reach out, our door is open. We also want to just be church and be helpful in the world. And, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to me, my email is available on the website, or you can DM us um, on Facebook or Instagram, and we'd love to get back to you.